This is What the FC. I'm Will Martin. And I'm Matt McCutcheon. MLS is weird, and we love a good story. Let's go. Welcome back to What the FC. You are listening to episode 12. Today we're going to be doing a deep dive into pay-to-play, the pay-to-play structure in American youth soccer. We've got like 10 pages of research, 7 pages of notes for this one. It's a lot of information because it's a really, really big topic. We could have done a whole mini-series on this, but Matt and I spent a lot of time breaking this down into the most digestible, easy-to-understand components that we could so that your takeaways from it can be very clean, very understandable, uh, and so we don't just overload you with statistics, information, and money, and funding, and all this kind of stuff like we did when we were doing the research. It's There's a lot out there about it, but we're going to make it manageable, and we're going to have a really good time with this one. So are you excited for this one, Matt? I'm very excited for this one. Uh, it's been a nice relief to plug into this all afternoon, so I don't have to sulk about the Arsenal loss against <laughs> Everton. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it and to get my mind off of it. Yeah, what is it, eight losses in 14 now? Um, I thought we said we we're not going to talk about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing. I'm doing. I'm doing very well. I'm excited for the Christmas. Uh, yeah, Christmas next week. Yeah, it's coming up quick. Um, Feels crazy. Yeah, but uh, excited to break down this very easy, digestible, simple, co- uh, um, not really complex topic of <laughs> you know pay-to-play structure of American soccer. It's so complex. It's ridiculous, but. Pay-to-play is often talked about in American soccer circles. If you are a part of American soccer Twitter, you have probably seen the words pay-to-play a million times. Generally, it's kind of agreed that pay-to-play is holding back player development in the U.S. That's what's generally agreed uh, by the soccer community. I think every single article out there in 2018 was about American men fail to qualify for 2018 World Cup. Pay to play is the issue. It must be fixed. Yeah, I, I got really tired of reading a lot of those articles. I don't know about you. Yeah, it's not that I disagreed with them or anything, but it's just there wasn't much of a resolution. It was just here's something of like a failure. We're gonna hang over your heads and you know just beat it until uh, yeah it stops bleeding and and <laughs> it's just like all right, I get it. As an Arsenal fan, I get it. We suck. Yeah, like stop. Stop reminding us of that. Like, how can we actually fix it? And it was the same thing with uh, 2018. It's like, okay, U.S. soccer development. That's something that we need to look at and try and restructure. But what are we going to do? It's like a big topic. And so I think that ultimately that's what motivated us in this episode is trying to find some resolution, something to move forward. And um, so that we can have some hope at the end of the tunnel so that we can win a world cup ultimately you know have like a great domestic league and and win um at a national level yeah so uh ultimately our goal with the episode like matt says is to break down how we can change pay to play how can we tangibly do that we got pretty tired of i think of reading articles that just said pay to play is the problem if we fix it we'll be a much better soccer nation okay cool but how? Yeah. And I think we kind of got frustrated over time of not seeing anyone offer, how do we do this? So we decided, all right, let's just research it and do an episode on it. Um, so generally the perception is that pay to play 
in U.S. soccer, in U.S. youth soccer, locks out players of lower socioeconomic status. And thus, sadly and unfortunately, because of the inequality in our country, it locks out a more diverse player demographic. Uh, it locks out black kids, locks out uh, Latino and Hispanic kids, um, which we obviously don't want to see. We want to see a more diverse player demographic in our youth soccer. And when we talk about pay to play, what we mean is that Kids, if they want to play at a high level or a competitive level in youth soccer in the United States, their families are forking out money to fund that team, to, to fund their child's participation in that team. According to Utah State researchers, the average amount spent by a U.S. family with a child who plays soccer is about $1,500, $1,500, with some spending upwards of $5,500 per year. Uh, and this was a broad-ranging survey, including families with children as young as eight up to uh, kids who participated at all levels from elite to rec and everything in between. So a broad range here. But $1,500 is a lot, and $5,500 is a lot. Yeah. Um, additionally, only 7.3% of families with a kid playing soccer report playing it for free. This is from the same research. Compare that to basketball where 11.2% report playing for free. Or tackle football, 14.7% report playing it for free. And, okay, great, you can kind of point to high school programs yeah. and that kind of stuff being a major driver of those. But even traditional kind of country club, expensive sports like golf, 17.6% report playing it for free. Tennis, 15.7% report playing it for free. Soccer is way behind. And this is just to illustrate for you guys what we mean when we talk about the problem of pay to play. But ultimately, we didn't want to take everyone's word for it. That, oh, hey, because soccer is obviously expensive for youth soccer, that means people of lower socioeconomic status aren't playing as much. Yeah. Sure, that makes sense theoretically, but we wanted to go and figure out and make sure that was true yeah right so uh we looked at some uh research from the sports and fitness industry association the sfia they are basically the leading researcher on anything with youth sports and sports participation rates and activity rates in the u.s they're pretty great uh, and all the data i'm going to give you is based on 2017 research um and so what i found really really interesting was they had this data about participation rates in soccer broken down into basically tax brackets. And so I compared that to the tax brackets and the percentages of citizens in the U.S. by another source, by Statista. And I found some pretty interesting results. So if you have under $25,000 household income, that is 17.1% of the U.S. population. But it is only 10.6% of this outdoor soccer participation. So that's a 7% difference. That's fairly significant. 25 to 50,000 is 20% of the U.S. population. And that is only 17.5% of the outdoor soccer so participation. So a little bit better represented. But a little bit better once you get a little bit higher, but still under. Yeah. Right. And then 50 to 75 is just about even uh, 16.5 to 18.9. And then 75 to 100 is actually overrepresented in outdoor soccer. That is only 12.3 percent of the U.S. population. 
but it is 19.6% of the outdoor participation. And then when you get to the top bracket, which is $100,000 household income or more, that is 34% of the uh, U.S. population and makes up 33% of outdoor soccer participation. So according to the data above, the participation levels for soccer in general are not criminal. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say. Yeah, no, but I think that a lot of times you read articles and stuff where people will utilize one aspect of this data where yeah. you see, yeah, over 30, like over a third of the participants in elite soccer or in any competitive soccer or in the highest tax bracket in the over a hundred thousand uh, dollars in income. Yeah. Distribution. And that's got a lot of shock value. It's like, whoa, 33% of youth soccer players have household income over a hundred thousand. That's ridiculous. It, that's it, it so sounds high. elitist. Yeah, yeah. It sounds elitist. But then when you look at, you got to contextualize it. That's yeah. just like an important thing is to make sure that you verify your data and stuff. And, and it's, it's really difficult. Like I don't, I don't judge anyone for being like, Oh yeah, but they, over a third of people yeah. um, are in that high tax bracket or over a hundred thousand. So it's soccer, like the pay to play. It's just it's a rich person sport. Yeah. But you have to do so much research. We have to do so much research to figure out any sort of like topic or any sort of narrative that, uh, of this, like of the problems within yeah. the pay to play structure. And I mean, I know with a, um, a topic that I had this semester, I had an international business and I had to do a project on the Korean U.S. free trade agreement and. I had to read eight different dissertations from eight yeah. different economic uh, elite or not elites, but uh, experts. Yeah. And, and even I then you couldn't find. Yeah. I, I ranted to you about that for like a <laughs> solid hour. And then I was like, oh, I finally came up with something. It took me eight hours of sitting at a desk yeah. to figure out something like that. When you go to something like this as well, it's extremely complicated. It's extremely complex. It's not something that you can just sit down for like a 30 seconds and look at a scroll on, yeah. on Twitter uh, and get the overall gist of the problem. It's a much more bigger topic that requires a lot more time and sweat equity to understand and get like a healthy opinion about it. Yeah, and for sure. And just to make Matt's point from earlier clear, when you talk about 33% of the player pool, and that feels elitist. Well, 34% of the U S population has a household income over a hundred thousand. So that is actually a representative part of the population. Yeah. It's a fair so, representation. Like, that is just a misleading statistic. And we're, look, we're not saying that pay to play isn't a problem and it isn't locking l kids from lower socioeconomic brackets out. I mean, you can look at the under 25,000 bracket and see that that's 17% of the U S population, but only 10% of the outdoor soccer participation. That's a problem. We want, we don't want kids to be locked out by paywalls. That's just not cool, obviously. But we just wanted to contextualize because we spent so long looking at this data. Make sure that you go confirm stuff. Do your research. Go a couple levels deep, which is what we try to do with this podcast. We yeah. try not to be service level. We try to go a couple more levels deep and, and look at those kinds of things. So for that data we gave, just keep in mind, that's also about soccer participation in general yeah that could range anywhere from like school ball to recreation ball to high level club to academies mm -hmm. it's not just talking about the high level club soccer which is where the pay-to-play model is a problem yeah it, the pay-to-play model is not as much of a problem at the rec level and and at the school level that it's not as much of a problem there so take that data that we gave kind of with a grain of salt i think it's there's no real data out there for just high level club soccer but i think we can generally assume that 
it's worse at the high level club soccer just because the money is yeah. more and, and worse. So we're just going to kind of make that assumption, even though we don't have a lot of data to back it up. If anyone's got data that would back that up, please shoot us that way. Cause we couldn't find anything for it. Yeah. So, and then also there are other factors at play here other than just the money. Yeah. And I think both Matt and I have some experience with that as we grew up playing in youth soccer. Yeah. So the, the club that I played for, um, so I'm originally from Hilton Head, South Carolina. And so pretty much for all of Buford County, the county that I lived in, uh, we only had one real club. We had one club really Mm -hmm. representing the entire uh, county. And, and so on my team, I was one of three white people. The rest of them were Hispanic and it was, it was really cool. I got to meet a lot of people that, um, I didn't, I wasn't in a high school with or anything like that. They were from different schools around the the county. And so it was nice to really get like a, a big understanding of what different people in my community look like, you know, Hilton head and Bluffton is very much a very wealthy area that people go and retire to. So typically you just see a bunch of old white people. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I got to play with a lot of Hispanic people and that that was a, a lot of fun, but ultimately when it came to game time, I had some games where I played with eight people, eight people on the field. And that wasn't because the people, uh, my teammates weren't showing up to practice. They'd show up to practice after school and stuff. But on the weekends, they were an integral part of their family's income. Yeah. And so I got there are a lot of conversations with our head coach where people were like, hey, coach, I can't make it to this tournament this weekend. I can't make it to this game this weekend, even if it was a home game, yeah. uh, because they said they couldn't take off of work or whatever, that their family was depending on them or that they had to babysit their their siblings or something. Um, because when you're like. A lot of these people um, on my team were in that kind of like lower socioeconomic um, demographic of that lower socioeconomic bracket. Right. And so when you're in that lower bracket, you're every person that can work is really important. And so like that was not their fault. You know, it's not it was just a system that they kind of were like born into. Mm -hmm. It's not something that they asked for. Like that's not something that, you know, you can determine when you're born in terms of like how much money your family makes or whatever. It's like, I, I, you could just say I got lucky or I'm blessed or whatever that I I didn't have to worry about that. But, but for them, that's something that they had to worry about. And so that was a detriment to their individual talent and development because man, they were some of the best players I ever played with. You know, they're really good. Technically they had a lot of flair and were having a lot of fun. They're really good teammates that I had. And, it made me really love the game when we were in practice, but man, it was just disappointing that like, I was like, man, these guys could easily go to college and play if I could. Um, mm-hmm. and so it, it was that kind of system kind of yeah. letting them down. Yeah. I had similar experiences. Well, I won't dive into them just in the, um, interest of time, but work commitments are definitely big family responsibilities, like taking care of siblings, all that kind of stuff are, are definitely big. And, and that can have to do with socioeconomic categories that can have to do with different cultural, um, expectations, yeah. um, to back up kind of our anecdotal experience with research, according to the Aspen research Institute, about one in five children in Harlem, Mobile County and Hawaii. So three very different places said that they don't play youth sports due to family responsibilities. So that's that's a pretty big chunk of children right there. Um, and so I think it just goes to show that money is not the only obstacle keeping youth soccer 
from getting a more diverse player pool, both in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of ethnic status, racial status, all that kind of stuff. But we can't focus on all of that in one episode. So we're going to kind of, for the purpose of this episode, kind of ignore those problems. We're not saying those problems aren't important to address, but we really just want to focus only on the barrier of payment to playing yeah Uh, and that's kind of what we're going to focus on through the rest of this episode but we wanted to acknowledge that there are other issues that are keeping kids out that once we solve this payment which is the biggest barrier yeah then there are other things we still need to address and we just wanted to acknowledge that from the outset here but there's a tangent aside let's get straight back in to the episode so obviously it's a problem we've got pay to play we've got too high of cost. We're locking kids out from lower socioeconomic brackets and certain demographics in our country. So how do we solve this? If you scroll along on Twitter, if you do a Google search, the traditional answer that you're going to be given is that in Europe and the rest of the world, they have the FIFA lays down training compensation and solidarity payments. And the U.S. does not follow those regulations. And that is why pay-to-play exists in the U.S. That is the traditional answer that is given. It's not the answer I'm giving. It's the traditional answer that is given. So quickly, I'm going to outline to you guys what training compensation and solidarity payments are so that you have the context to understand this conversation. So FIFA, which is the governing body over soccer for the entire world, it is the international organization over everything, they define training compensation as when a player registers as a pro for the first time in a country other than the one where he did his training, the club he registers for is responsible for paying training compensation to the clubs that trained him from 12 years old through 21 years old. So a bunch of bylaw jargon there. Basically what that means in the context of American soccer can be seen in Weston McKinney. Remember, up until recently, U.S. the U.S. did not follow training compensation and solidarity payment. So Weston McKinney, never he grew up in the FC Dallas Academy. He never signed a contract with FC Dallas. He signed his first professional contract with Schalke in Germany in the Bundesliga instead. Under this system, Schalke would have had to pay FC Dallas an amount for his training. We won't get into the numbers, but it could have been anywhere from $2,000 to $90,000 per year of training. Basically, that's how it works, right? So it just kind of protects the club. If you develop him all the way through your academy and he decides decides not to sign with your professional team and someone else from a different country signs him, you get compensated for it and you get some money for it. So you don't just lose, you don't just invest all this money in him and then you just lose him for free. Yeah. Makes sense intuitively. Okay. Then you've got separately solidarity payments. Basically, what a solidarity payment is, is whenever a player is bought by another club from a different country. 5% of the transfer fee goes back to the clubs that trained him from like 12 to 21 years old. So another American example, Christian Pulisic. He was transferred from Borussia Dortmund in Germany to Chelsea in England for 73 million American dollars. It's a lot of money. 5% 5% of that is about $3.65 million. PA Classics, which is the American youth team that uh, Christian grew up playing for from 12 to 16 years old before he moved to Germany, 
would have received like, you know, somewhere between 500000 and a million dollars for that transfer from Christian Pulisic. That'd be a pretty major windfall for PA Classics. But we didn't follow these at this time, and yeah. we still only follow them partially, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. And so they haven't seen none of that money. Importantly, all of this only applies to transfers or signings from different countries. So say Christian Pulisic had been transferred from one Germany club to another, for, say Borussia Dortmund to Bayern Munich, solidarity payments do not apply. Say Weston McKinney had signed with a different MLS club and not FC Dallas, this does not, uh, tra- the uh, training compensation that I explained earlier does not apply. That is the most basic I could yeah. keep that explanation. For domestic transfers, for where this stuff doesn't apply, FIFA leaves that up to individual countries to set up their own system. Currently, the U.S. has no su- such system. Yeah, well, I mean, you see that in like TAM and GAM allocation and when you get like a yeah. trade for a player. That, that's, yeah. that's but the problem it, is yeah. like if a USL Academy develops a USL kid and then he signs for an MLS team, mm-hmm. then like they, they see get nothing. nothing. Yeah. yeah, and that's kind of the problem. However, recently in spring 2019, so about almost two years now, MLS announced that they would begin adhering to these FIFA policies. So this means that they would have filed a claim for the training compensation on Weston McKinney. And FC Dallas would have gotten some money for developing McKinney and they wouldn't have just invested all that money in him and lost him for free. So cool. And then U.S. Soccer, though, adopted a neutral stance on it, which basically means that they'll like pass on claims but they won't actively advocate for them. So this is where PA Classics falls, right? Mm -hmm. Because MLS will advocate for their MLS clubs, but MLS doesn't control any of the rest of the clubs. That's all U.S. Soccer and USSF. So PA Classics would be under U.S. Soccer, and because U.S. Soccer says, oh, we're just kind of neutral on this, we don't want to get into the antitrust laws and stuff that are a problem here in the United States with this, this means that U.S. Soccer kind of passed on the holistic PA Classics claim, but they didn't really advocate for it. And basically PA Classics are just kind of screwed unless they hire a bunch of lawyers and really fight through the process. And even then they might not get the money. So that is that. Uh, MLS is also open to conversations with non-MLS clubs about creating that domestic payment system that I mentioned earlier. But ultimately those conversations have been shelved recently because, you know, coronavirus <laughs> yeah yeah that <laughs> so, small thing. yeah that that kind of small thing so since about spring 2019 mls clubs have seen about a million dollars from the start of this um and that number is going to go up importantly the only two mls academies that are still pay to play that are not free are minnesota united and dc united they aren't eligible for any of this mls isn't going to file their claims because they still have pay to play models which Good on MLS. Yeah, puts some pressure on them. Exactly, so, and uh, not the passively, uh, passive aggressively. You know, reference to the last episode where I say when the MLS has like an uh, has like a goal or a motto, not a motto, but a goal or an objective that they want to achieve as a league. Yeah, they will incentivize 
uh, teams in order to make those changes. Yeah. And incentivize doesn't mean like, hey, we'll give you rewards. It could also mean, hey, we're not going to give you these <laughs> abilities to make additional revenue and yeah. income to um, to benefit your team. A good point. It, it's a big trend with MLS. They do a lot of things like that, as I'm sure leagues around the world do. It's not totally unique to just MLS. Yeah, no, so, exactly. Kind of in summary, training compensation and solidarity payment. I think you guys can see why this seems like a great solution to pay to play. A club like PA Classics strikes gold with someone like Christian Pulisic and sells him on. And then eventually he gets sold for a lot of money and they get hundreds of thousand dollars back, which allows them to fund the operations of their club year on year. And they fund it that way. Similarly for training compensation operates in a similar manner. So seems like, you know, great. Like if we install this which it seems like we're starting to move towards doing seems like it would be a great way to get rid of pay to play but some people think a little bit differently right matt yeah and kind of surprisingly uh it's the players the players aren't too happy about that Mm -hmm. and and probably their agents as well because they see it as as a tax almost and in terms of this is additional revenue that a team who's receiving so like with Borussia Dortmund if they had to um, give those payments to uh, PA Classics that is kind of like de-incentivizing people to buy those American players because I think that's what we've been seeing as a trend recently is MLS is very much an untapped market in terms of their market inefficiency exactly and so like prior to uh, the MLS enacting these um, these rules and, and stuff in terms of training solidarity yeah. payments and training compensation. Yeah, I'm getting tired of saying it. All yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, oh gosh. But anyways, um, prior to that, a team could just buy Alfonso Davies and be like, all right, well, I'll just pay for him one time shop, you yeah. know, it is one time stop. And I don't have to worry about paying white caps, anything else for the remainder of his career at Bayern Munich. And so when or, Bayern, if they, or if they transfer him on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So and, and if Bayern Munich go and, and sell him, they don't lose that 5%. Exactly. And, and it's a business and yeah. every percent matters, especially since COVID. Everyone's been like penny pinching in, in every way possible. And so a, lo- a lot of players think that this is going to kind of diminish the amount of international exposure or spotlight in terms of wanting to make MLS a selling league uh, because it it kind of takes away from that unique kind of tax break. Uh, if, if, uh, if I'm, if I yeah. can, um, yeah, 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 basically. And, and I, I think one of the uh, points that the, uh, players association, the MLSPA makes in their argument against it, uh, is all based around the Weston McKinney case that we gave earlier. Yeah. Um, Schalke swooped in and right as Weston McKinney was maybe about to graduate to the FC Dallas first team, they saw him, they could come in and get him and not have to pay FC Dallas anything for him and just get him for free. Whereas if they got him from any other European country or whatever, they'd have to pay training compensation for him. Yeah. So that was a great deal for them. They could take a chance on him. Even if they didn't rate him like that that highly at the time, they could just take a chance on him. And so the argument is that Schalke might have thought twice about that. Maybe Weston McKinney ends up signing for FC Dallas instead because Schalke doesn't think it's worth the money anymore. And, you know... We all know where Weston McKinney's at. He's one U.S. male soccer player of the year. He's at Juventus playing next to Cristiano Ronaldo. He's this big up-and-coming star. 
But if this had been in place when he was there, you can play the if-win game all day long, right? But that's their argument, is that it's creating this tax and discouraging player movement. Yeah. And, and ultimately, violating U.S. antitrust laws <laughs> yeah. is what their legal argument comes down to. Yeah, and that would be a very, very big... Um, I guess a very big case that would go yeah. very high up and it'd go all the way to the Supreme Court if they were able to uh, that's, accept that. Uh, that's ultimately, ultimately why MLS and U.S. soccer have been so afraid of this for so long yeah. because of the antitrust law problem. It, basically, with the antitrust law, this is seen as preventing the free movement of labor, which is the basically the, the whole point of U.S. antitrust law. Yeah. And obviously i mean i think that holds water when you just look at it from a, a really basic sense so you can see why the players are not as happy about this this is ultimately more about major league soccer retaining players yeah. and not losing them like they lost weston mckinney exactly they're a business they want to retain their star players they want to graduate their players they want to, their uh, academies to be able to make money off their investments and generate money for themselves and keep their profit ticking over which makes sense you just kind of have to look at it a little bit deeper yeah yeah there's there's always two sides of an argument at least you know i i think that with a, a lot of mls teams like fc dallas it's when you're developing these players you can't decide which ones that the foreign teams are gonna want to take yeah. you know so like you could have a bunch of defenders or whatever and, you know, they're not going to go for like a high dollar, but you need to have those compensation um, fees or whatever for the amount of years uh, as well yeah. that it took to develop him. Because those uh, the amount of money that's required to develop a defender is going to be the same amount that's going to require uh, to develop a midfielder or a forward. Yeah. And so it kind of protects them in that front, too, not just in terms of that ultimate sale you know with christian pulisic is going to be worth a whole lot more than the matt miazga transfer right uh from red bulls to chelsea and so with that I yeah think like that is the is the is the u.s youth club is pa class i don't know who developed matt miazga i'm sorry i think he came through the red bull academy yeah but say he came through somewhere like pa classics that yeah. wasn't an mls team is pa classics doing a better job at developing because they developed one world-class striker Versus this other club that developed one world-class center back. Ah, this is a bad comparison because now I'm making Matt Biazga a world-class center back. But anyways, <laughs> like, are, God, that's, this has backfired horribly on me. But are are they doing... They, they sh they're doing an equal job of developing players. They've yeah. developed one world-class center back, one world-class forward, but PA Classics is profiting way more because... Pulisic happens to be a forward and forwards yeah. cost more money on the market. And that's the payments are ultimately very arbitrary and yeah. don't actually encourage good youth development. They just encourage like developing the players that cost a lot of money. Exactly. And so that's another argument that they have against it. And yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's the ultimate, I think having both is, is important. They serve two yeah. different functions. I think training compensation is more of like a, having a floor, uh, amount of compensation set in terms of all right this is the minimum you're going to have to pay us in terms of the development for any player mm -hmm. you know um and and then with solidarity payments that's where you kind of get rewarded for having those kind of more luxury goods and yeah. items of, of a certain position or a type of player yeah and, and the pa to wrap this up also argues that the amount collected through training compensation and solidarity payments across the world doesn't really 
is just a drop in the bucket. Like they really don't think it's as big as it's made out to be. You just can kind of look at these isolated cases of Christian Pulisic going for $73 million, but that's a very isolated case. And you can see some isolated cases where someone got transferred for $10 million and the $10,000 to this youth club was like life-changing for this little tiny youth club that he played at when he was 12 and 13 years old. Mm -hmm. Sure. But that's anecdotal, not backed up by statistics. Yeah. Yeah. And, at least that's what the MLSPA argues. Yeah. So on its surface, player compensation and solidarity payments, they seem to work. It seems like oh, like this is our panacea. This is the way we fix pay to play. We get this in. We develop players like we've been doing a good job of recently in the U.S., sell them to Europe, and that's how we fund and we get rid of pay to play in the U.S. But I just don't think it's actually that simple. Yeah, I'm it's not, not sustainable. Really behind, I'm not really behind it. And why do we think it's not sustainable, Matt? Yeah, so ultimately, I think that the system is too hit and miss. It's not sustainable, like like we said. For every PA Classics, you have a team like I was on, yeah. you know? So, like, you have PA Classics who struck gold, and it could have been just luck of the draw. You know, Christian Pulisic could have lived somewhere else. He could have lived in the town over and yep. played for the club next door, and... Or you could have had like a team like mine, which wasn't a very high level in terms of club. I had to utilize different resources in order to get that exposure or whatever to get me to the next level. Um, and so it, and it only works for international transfers. So domestic transfers, it, it's up to a country. So it, it's not really that, like that for it's not beneficial within the U.S. Yeah, as well. like even if Christian Pulisic ended up playing in Major League Soccer and then, you know, it transfers don't look, work like this in MLS, but like the Chicago fire bought him from the New York Red Bulls for like $5 million. That doesn't fall under this. Yeah. And I don't know that people always realize that that doesn't fall under this. It's only on international transfers between different countries. Yeah, exactly. So, so to summarize, ultimately it, it's too niche. Yeah. It, it's too much of like a luck of a draw. It's not reliable source of income. And it's too relative. You can have different positions that get you yeah. different rewards and, and stuff like that. And so I just don't think that that's something that ultimately can be a sustainable source to fund the entirety of the U.S. soccer system going from the top level to yeah. the grassroots. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. It really only works for kind of these top, top level academies like your Ajax of Netherlands, who is probably the best developmental club in all of Europe. They wi- have a widely renowned academy um, and they can just cast this wide net and get the best players in the Netherlands every single year. And they can consistently sell players for a high amount of money to then turn around and fund their academy and then through training compensation and solidarity payments and all that kind of stuff, right? But that's for Ajax. That's for a club that has a wide net that it's like you said, it's too hit and miss for a lot of these smaller clubs. You don't want to be spending money that you don't have. It it doesn't make sense from a business standpoint. And I don't think it makes sense here. Plus the big clubs have multi-million dollar owners financing it. Yeah. Anyways. I mean, MLS had already gotten rid of pay to play through their owners financing it before this happened uh, in their MLS academies, Mm -hmm. at least except for two. So, you know, ultimately, I'm not totally convinced on it. I think it has its place. I'm not totally slanting this and totally putting this down. I don't think either of us are. It yeah, has no. its place, but it is not as clear cut as it you would seem with a simple Google search or a really clickbaity article that you'll see on American Soccer Twitter. So then we got to offer some sort of solution, right? So yeah. if it's not training compensation and solidarity payments... 
what is it, right? And, and we've seen that MLS is... MLS is not struggling to eliminate pay-to-play. I mean, in that way, we're in line with the rest of the world. They yeah. have free academies yeah. for all but two of the clubs, as we've said multiple times now. So ultimately, what we need to talk about here is how we're defining different levels of development. You've kind of got two buckets that we're going to split this up into for this the point of this discussion. You've got the elite, elite development, which is just your MLS Academy teams. They've eliminated pay-to-play. We don't need to worry about them. Yeah. They've, they've got the model figured out. Their owners are figuring out how to turn over profit by selling players. They're good. We don't need to worry about them. Everything else below that, that's what we need to worry about trying to figure out how to eliminate pay-to-play from. And we're going to term that as grassroots. I know a lot of time grassroots has the rec vibe to it. You automatically think like rec, rec, recreational soccer, church league soccer, that kind of stuff. We're just going to use the term grassroots to anything that's not an MLS academy, including even some of the youth teams attached to some pro teams like the Charlotte Independence Youth Club or the NCFC Youth Club, to give examples that are close to home for us. Those are not their academies. We'd love to see NCFC and Charlotte Independence fully fund their academy programs yeah. as well. We, we'd love to see that. I don't think they have the revenue for that yet. But their clubs below, their teams below that, I mean, and, and then anything on down from that, that's what we're terming as grassroots. Just need to put that out there. That's what we're talking about here when we're talking about where we're trying to eliminate pay to play. So, Grassroots in itself is really, really important. It's vital to inclusivity, identifying talent. Ultimately, the MLS and to an extent, the USL academies, there's too few of them to find everyone. Yeah. We've got a huge country here in the US, which is a major developmental problem for us. We are not a small country where you can just get on a bus and go from one end to another. Mm -hmm. Huge country. The academies are really spread out. They can't identify and train all the elite players, potential elite players that we have in this country. So we need strong programs everywhere at all levels through the pyramid so that we can give the most diverse talent pool possible a chance to be found. Yeah, exactly. And and not only is it important for like the professional game of, of soccer in terms of developing the Kristen Pulisic, the Weston McKinney's and all the best players in the yeah. U.S. national team right now, Grassroots soccer is just important in terms of a developmental um, pathway in terms of developing physically, socially, and, and mentally for, for kids. It's one of the best ways to fight against child obesity, fight against heart disease and different things like that. It reduces the chance of smoking. There's just sure. so many community benefits of just sport in general grassroots recreational sport in general and more specifically within soccer once you get towards that more competitive level it's really important for learning how to perform under pressure learning how to take constructive criticism and not take it so badly where you just quit but in order to take that and really assess yourself and make the sacrifices necessary to improve yeah. and get those results that you want i think i think both me and you experienced that with queens uh quite yeah, a bit yeah definitely for sure i mean i know for for myself like when i when i you know the contrast in terms of playing varsity soccer in like a small school in south carolina to going to a division two program and where you're playing with all these people from such a high level 
You know, uh, it was really like a big shock factor. You yeah. know, not being the best player on your team is a real shock factor. It was for me too. And so it was, I had to really like assess myself and be like, all right, what sacrifices am I going to be needing to, to make? So like for me, that was going to the gym a lot more, trying to get myself in the best physical shape. That was going to practice early, always being the first one like on the field yeah. and passing on the on the wall by myself, just trying to get my passing better and my touch better and which it really needed to do because yeah. I just wasn't at that level. It's not to say like, oh, I'm working harder, like I'm Cristiano Ronaldo and I'm going to be better and I'm better than everyone else. And no, it's because I wasn't better than everyone else yeah. by a big margin and like just being totally honest. And mm-hmm. and so it really helped me to look at like, all right, how do I you know, assess like these sacrifices. And, and ultimately after, after my first year, I was just like, wow, that is a huge amount of sacrifices. And I just got to be honest with myself. Is that sacrifice worth it? Is it, is it worth it for, for my education, for, for my own mental health and stuff? And, and I just had to humble myself and say no, but, but for you, it's like a different story in terms of those sacrifices. Yeah. I mean, I got a little bit lucky as well. I walked into kind of a better uh, path to playing time than you did. And uh, obviously like we're not here to talk about the intricacies of our uh, college development pathways, but (laughs) I mean, ultimately you and I both took away some pretty major lessons in mental toughness from that. I mean, regardless of the different outcomes of our college career, I think we both have a lot better understanding now of how to handle adversity through experience in sports. So we talk about all that, not to just go off on a random tangent, but to emphasize to you guys the importance of developmental soccer outside of just the pro academies. I think we get caught up a lot in thinking that if you're not in an academy, you're not going to like succeed and become the next Christian Pulisic. Guys are found constantly we've mm-hmm. told stories in this podcast about valentine sabella that plays for charlotte independence right now he didn't go to college was never in a pro academy played for a little small semi-pro team ended up making this magical u.s open cup run knocked the charlotte independence out of the open cup and got signed by them everyone's got a different pathway and that's why it's so important for these grassroots youth clubs to be strong and to give good environments and affordable environments yeah. where these kids can afford to be seen by the MLS teams, by the academies, and if they have the talent to be then picked up by them. Yeah, That's why we mention the importance of, of this grassroots level of soccer. So ultimately, how do we strengthen the affordability of these programs? Right now, if you want to be in a good grassroots program, so a good youth club that isn't connected to a professional team, if you want to be playing at a good level, you're going to be paying for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to be paying at that 2000 3000 4000 $5,000 level a year. And oftentimes that isn't even including hotels, gas, travel costs, all that kind of stuff. Which are insanely expensive. It's, it's the number one most expensive factor of sports in general in the U.S. So yeah. that's where it's like unique to the U.S. problem of having such a large geographic area. Yeah. For me, I had to drive I had to drive an hour and a half to practice every night. Yeah. That, that was like I, I'd have practice at 7 p.m. So I'd, you know, get done with school, get home, leave around 
I guess, yeah, five o'clock, get there 30 minutes early, have a two hour session, get home at 1030 or 11 yeah. at the very latest. And, like, and that was every day of the week. Yeah. You're basically paying like what? 25, 30 bucks a session just in gas. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're, paying, you're doing a tank of gas every session. So you have to think about those things as well. So in order to understand how the U.S. can better fund grassroots programs, if it isn't going to be through training, compensation, and solidarity payments, as we've established that Matt and I believe it's not going to be sustainably. Yeah. Let's look at some countries in Europe that are sustainably funding their grassroots soccer. A great case study is Germany, which Matt did a lot of research on. So tell us about how Germany is funding their grassroots and why they're funding their grassroots so heavily. Yeah. So, so first off, why, uh, they had, you know, good success. They, I think they won the 1990 world cup or something like that. And so they had really good success there, but they underperformed in the euros. They got knocked out of the group stages in 2000 and 2004. And they ultimately did a SWOT analysis on themselves and were like, we got to make some changes in order to develop a, broader pool of talent that's grown domestically and playing globally so that we can get the best players on our national team. And so in order to do that, they enacted a plan. And so over a 10 year period, they invested $80 million a year in, uh, for a total of a billion dollars in infrastructure, coaching facilities, and player fees. And when we're seeing infrastructure and coaching and facilities or whatever, it's not just like bare bones. They're having, they have over 1300 UEFA B licensed coaches. And of those coaches, they see over 650,000 players a year. So you're getting in, in a huge, a huge player pool going through the eyes of these very high level or high trained yeah. for grassroots level, at least high trained grassroots level coaches. A UEFA B license is a very high license in the in the UEFA coaching license uh, yes. tree to give you guys some context if you don't know about coaching licensing basically to be a coach at a higher level you often need to go through these coaching classes yeah. um, that are both have kind of like practical field components and educational classroom components where you learn how to construct sessions how to better be a coach basically just like you'd go to school to for any occupation you go to school to be a better coach and so a uefa b license is a very high license. this means yeah. they've gone through multiple courses to get up to the uefa b license which is closer to the little tip of the pyramid yeah so you're having 1300 coaches 1300 coaches they they aren't like your typical high school coach or whatever yeah. who was like a football coach that didn't have uh, you weren't in season so you're it was a spring yeah. he just needed an extra sport to coach these and are so, highly qualified yeah coaches. these are yeah. very highly qualified and a single coach sees at least 500 players and so those coaches know the criteria of what makes a good player yeah. and can report that to upper levels of the player development chain yeah i mean they've, they, it's 1300 ufab coaches for 650,000 players which as matt was mentioning there is a one to 500 ratio that is incredible a good ratio for i mean we're not saying that like one coach for every 500 players we're just saying one high level coach for yeah. every for every 500 players that means every player in germany is has some sort of contact and is influenced in some way by a very highly qualified coach which i don't think is the case here yeah no very very much the opposite <laughs> but anyways yeah go on sorry. yeah that's a different conversation but in response to their national team failures which 
is exactly where we're at as yep. uh, U.S. soccer fans uh, and U.S. men's soccer fans. Our U.S. women are are doing very well, but they also have a lot of problems that they're facing. That's a whole different podcast uh, yeah. to to talk about. But it wasn't uh, a top down problem. They had incredible academies. They had incredible teams. It was a bottom up problem. It was okay. Other than our one percent, how is everyone else doing? You know, we want to raise that floor so that we can develop, we can catch all these uh, players that wouldn't normally be seen. We don't want these players to go unseen. We want to try and see them with good eyes. and Give them more bites at the apple, more chances to strike gold. Yeah, and and ultimately, it it worked for them. Germany (laughs) has been so dominant in the past 15 years. I mean, aside from their last World Cup performance, which was more of an aging um, golden era and not really having that new wave of players, which they're, they have now, uh, coming through. So that's kind of a different reason for it, but they've had so much success. They, I think, I think they won the euros and they won the world cup. Yeah. Um, world cup 2014. Yeah. Um, and, and 2014 and, and I've been performing very well at pretty much every international tournament aside from the most recent World Cup in, yeah. in Russia. I mean, literally, guys, they went out in the group stages of Euros 2004, immediately decided they needed to change everything. We're investing $80 million a year for a total of $1 billion over the next decade. And literally 10 years later, they won the World Cup. Yeah. I think it paid off for them. And they won the World Cup with a core of young players that had come up through this development system that they created. Yes, and exactly. And it's still working and it's still churning out players. And it's it's really been pretty awesome but i mean the question is one billion dollars is a lot of money where did the money come from yeah so ultimately it came from the the top two divisions of the bundesliga bundesliga one and bundesliga two yeah and them going with the dfb so their national fa their national team football association and the german government as well and they all partnered with each other and i think it was the president of the um dfb was saying how this was a unified effort and you don't see that in many countries and so we were able to align our national team with our national clubs and when we align we're able to portray this vision to our government and show them that there's a lot of good social welfare that comes from grassroots development and also for just general revenue and building up uh, revenue for, for taxes and whatever, but it was mutually beneficial for all three groups. And so they were forking out all of that money. And so that's where that money originally came from. It didn't just come from the teams. It didn't just come from the government, which I don't think anyone would want. No one, no one wants to be, paying all their hard-earned dollars and yep. taxes uh, to, to pay for some leisure sport. So I think it's like a good unified effort in terms yeah. of funding something. Yeah, exactly. And I think just kind of goes to illustrate our point. That is a lot of money to be investing in getting coaches licensed, getting coaches progressing through the ranks, building infrastructure, building huge training centers. That's a lot of money to invest. You aren't getting that kind of money from like player transfers and making some money from like the Bundesliga sides. It just doesn't work like that. And you're not, you you have to create partnerships and unify all the interested parties and get that kind of money invested very intentionally through good programs into grassroots um, efforts. We saw a similar thing. Let's also shift over and let's look at England. Um, They're another great case study for how to approach 
funding grassroots soccer. So since 2001, the FA, which is their football association, their national team yeah. association, the Premier League, their first division, and Sport England, which is an arm of the government, basically, invested almost a billion dollars in community facilities projects. That's since 2001. So that's over a two-decade period. That's 33,000 grassroots teams benefiting from it. So that's great. They, they already have this partnership that we were bragging on the Germans about between the top leagues, the National yeah. Team Association, and the government in trying to affect grassroots soccer. But still, consistent international failures and a lack of homegrowns coming through the Premier League led to questions about grassroots soccer in uh, England recently, which I think we can talk about the parallels there with American soccer as well. International yeah. failures, maybe the lack of homegrowns, questions about how our development works. Anyways, at that point in 2018, the FA, just the FA, not the whole partnership between them, just the FA, we're investing $25 million in grassroots every year. $25 million, everything we're doing here is in American dollars. We converted everything. Yeah. But in 2018, they committed an extra $11 million to coincide with all their new grassroots programming. Um, and some of those initiatives included some really cool stuff. They identified 64,000 total grassroots clubs and committed to helping get at least one level one certified coach for each club. Clubs could apply for funds to cover one coach or one volunteer to take the course. Level one is basically kind of your your first coaching course in England. And just it's their entry level course. Yeah. It gets you associated with everything. So instead of just having like dad from the sideline who played Sunday league back in the day and hasn't played for 30 years coaching the kids team, they can get him going through the course and have that funded by the FA. And that cost isn't then put down onto the parents yeah. when they're paying for their kid to play. Right. That makes yeah. sense. And then for the 150 biggest ones, the 150 biggest grassroots clubs, they could apply to similarly receive help recruiting or retaining a UEFA B-level coach, similarly to what we saw in Germany. So a really big focus on developing the coaches in this community without transferring that cost onto the parents and yeah, the families. Yeah, and, and, and so it's that cost is being well put. That yeah. billion dollars is not going on some you know shoddy coaching and, and something that's going to be outdated. It's a unified effort. And so it's going to be a unified licensing. And so you're going to get all this high level coaching for your kids and the sacrifices that the Premier League, the FA and the um, uh, what, Sport England, yeah, yeah, Sport England, which we're assuming is some sort of government arm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that they were making, you know, is going to be well worth it. And I mean, at least it was for Germany. And, and yeah. in some cases, it, it has been for, for England in yeah. terms of creating like a very good. Uh, amount of English players, whether it's a good English national team, is a is a different uh, different yeah. conversation. <laughs> but but yeah, and so ultimately, that fee could have been even bigger. You know, yeah. it, it could have it could have surpassed a billion dollars easily. And I mean, in in Germany alone, they had 1.5 million volunteers working in grassroots soccer. They the from from the UEFA uh, statistics that they yeah. that they published on their websites, they say that this equates to 2.18 billion euros in cost saving. Wow. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> that is so, so much I money. I mean, 1.5 million volunteers working on grassroots soccer is pretty incredible. Like, that is a crazy amount of just volunteers, people that aren't paid. And mm. think about the cost saving there. 
because a lot of the fees here in the United States are associated with paying the salaries of the coaches. A lot of these coaches are full-time coaches and stuff, and they're trying to make a living too. And yeah. who's paying for their salary? Well, you are as the as the family that has a kid playing for the team. So having this level of volunteers in grassroots soccer in Germany, it just it makes sure that you have less of that cost distributed out to the family. And then Germany pushing for all these funded coach credentials and that kind of stuff, it makes sure these volunteers are capable volunteers, yeah. not just some Joe Schmo, you know, coaching his kid on the weekend. And they're not priced out of volunteering because they feel like they have to go to coaching credential that is too expensive for them and all that kind of stuff, which we're kind of seeing here in the United States. Coaching credential uh, courses are, are expensive. And so funding that really helps. Also, let's just acknowledge the kind of elephant in the room. The general knowledge of soccer in countries like Germany and yeah. England make volunteer coaches a lot more viable. Yes. Like your average guy in Germany is going to know a lot more about coaching soccer than your average guy here in the States. You know, like I think we see that a lot with high school and middle school coaches that, like you said earlier, just the football defensive coordinator that has some off time in the spring and needs some extra money. So he coaches the high school team. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that dynamic's a lot different because of the popularity of soccer in some of these foreign countries. Yeah. So let's just kind of, you know, put that out there and, yeah, and acknowledge, that that, is like an acknowledge that fact, right? Yeah. Um, and then along with the level of volunteers and stuff, there's so many grants and sponsorships and f charitable funding available in these countries. You've got the Football Foundation in England, which is a Premier League, FA, and government joint charity that puts out tons of grant and charitable funding to grassroots organizations. Uh, I found a whole amateurfa.com website that just listed all of these different organizations that offer funding and stuff, and then alternate strategies to fund your grassroots club and stuff like that. Whereas here, I don't think we're doing quite as much of that stuff. And then like we mentioned earlier, there's less travel due to the smaller country sizes. So yeah, your, uh, and, your costs and there's, are be there's lower. a more concentrated amount of clubs, grassroots clubs in smaller areas. Yeah. So much lower costs in terms of that. I think that's a really big piece of it too. So look, yeah. there's, there are some built in advantages that these countries have in reducing pay to play in their countries, knowledge of soccer, lower travel times, all that kind of stuff that they have. Sure. But there's also, so I think some stuff that we can take from what England have done and are doing right now to impact grassroots soccer and what Germany did uh, from about 2004 to 2014 and are still investing today yeah. in their grassroots soccer. I think we can take a lot away from that. Yeah, no, definitely. And and I think ultimately we, we've we been able to acknowledge the problem. We've been able to see the initial responses of the media of people just being like, hey, there's a problem. I think this is like a good way that we can get rid of pay to play, which is and, training, and training and compensation, payments. solidarity payments. And we're like, maybe yeah. I, I think that that's more of a icing on the cake. I think that that's, what's going to help promote a team from a third division to a second division. Yeah. I don't think that that's going to be something that sustains them in terms of, uh, of their operations and yeah. performance and stuff or like really that sustains a, a little small grassroots club like your Hilton head club. Yeah, exactly. And so now we got to back that up. And so we've been able to kind of find different ways that England and Germany have. So what can we do in the United States? Yeah. What, what can we apply to this? So, so ultimately I think that how do we get major league soccer? So our top division, um, how do we get 
USSF working together because they right now they're working mostly separately, you know, aside from a few partnerships and government funding for youth sports is not really visible or, or available for from what we can tell within the realm of soccer. Yeah, we're know? seeing in Germany and England, we're seeing these huge triads of the national FA, the top division in the league and the government themselves really pushing the funding. Yeah. And they have this big partnership and they're all unified and they're pumping money into grassroots soccer and they all feel like it's worth it. But then if you shift over to here in the United States, the USSF is doing some limited stuff. The Major League Soccer is doing some limited stuff. The government, from what we could see in our research, isn't really doing anything to fund youth sports. And so... That, that's that's the difference. That's where the money needs to come from. I yeah, think. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I mean, overall, we the the statistics that we were looking at, and we saw that grassroots soccer, uh, we're not grassroots soccer, just grassroots sports in terms of outdoor recreational activity, is going down in the U.S. overall, like on a year by year basis. And so, the from what I've been able to tell, it's been left up to these organizations. So you see the NFL, they have their NFL play 60 initiative. You have the first tee initiative from the USPGA and for, for golf to make affordable golf for kids. And I think it's, um, at their rec centers Mm -hmm. and, um, at their boys and girls clubs and stuff. And so for MLS, what's, what's their initiative? How, how can we get them? Cause it is, it's ultimately left like government kind of puts their hands off for this thing. And it's like, Hey, this is, this is for y'all to develop. And yeah. so that's where we got to create a, you know, compelling argument to show them the benefits of grassroots soccer, not only in terms of generating revenue, but in mm-hmm. terms of the overall well being for, for kids in, yeah. in, in general. Yeah. And to give some context for what people are doing, cause they are doing some things. We'll give them credit for that. Uh, the U S soccer federations innovate to grow fund gave out $2.4 million this year for 27 projects, uh, not this year in 2019, excuse me. Um, but that was 53 applications for 6.7 million and they were only able to fulfill 2.4 million of that 6.7 million. So yeah, that doesn't feel amazing to me. Um, the U S soccer foundation, which is affiliated with USSF, uh, they've partnered with Target, um, who've committed $6 million, and they're building many pitches in urban spaces, which is something I know you um, have always been really passionate about. Yeah. And they have over 300 fully funded projects. At the time of the article that I was reading, which was like 2017, 2018, they had 28 of them done. They had 270 or something in the pipeline. They wanted to have a ton of them done by 2020. I haven't been able to research if how much of those they we'll, finished. We'll see how much COVID affected I mean, COVID it, probably affected that quite a bit. So there are some projects going on, and there are other organizations in this space doing grants and funding. You've got U.S. Youth Soccer um, Organization doing uh, quite a bit of stuff. But really, it's all very small scale yeah it's, compared to the one billion dollar investment yeah. that you're seeing in germany you're, and like, you're, yeah you're talking about little injections of cash in different communities for different isolated projects but you're not talking about a unified approach to investing large sums of money in a vision that people have for what grassroots soccer can be in the united states and that i think is ultimately the problem. And look, I'm not going to sit here and ignore the fact that the revenue streams are very, very different animals. I mean, England is playing with in a completely different stratosphere from us in terms of revenue. I mean, 
the Premier League TV contracts all added together, foreign TV contracts, domestic TV contracts, $3 billion per season. Each team is getting around $80 million a season to play in the Premier League. That's the 20 teams that play in the Premier League. The MLS TV contract as a whole is $90 million a season. Each club in the Premier League is getting that much, and that's just that the clubs pay out from it. So imagine how much the Premier League's profiting, how much money they have to kind of play with to put into grassroots soccer in the country. I mean, that's really ridiculous. For the FA in England, their revenue yearly is about 450 to 600 million, depending on the year. Yeah. USSF, around 100 million. So we're talking very different things. I mean, the USSF has some pretty significant cash reserves right now. We hosted Copa America Centenario here, which was a huge one-time injection of cash. So they've got about $150 million of undesignated money, meaning money that isn't earmarked by donators and stuff like that. They can yeah. do whatever they want with it. So they've got a significant amount of liquid cash sitting in investments in their account that they could use for something. But it would be irresponsible of them just to pull out $120 million and just one time in inject it into grassroots soccer in the U.S. Like That's not how an, a responsible business runs. They need to have yeah. cash assets to make sure they're backed up in terms of what would happen this year. I mean, a lot yeah. of their profit comes from national team receipts and national team games on TV, and they've lost probably a lot of revenue this year. We haven't seen their tax returns for this year yet, but we're playing in different stratospheres with money, and I completely understand that. But the problem I think we have here is the lack of unified approach in funding the grassroots game in the United States. Yeah, and ultimately that's such an important part. It's we have a bigger demographic, we have a bigger population, we have a bigger country than both of those um, both of those countries that we looked at with England yeah. and Germany, respectively. We have a less of a budget to do what they are doing in their smaller populations and with less things holding them back. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly why we needed to have a unified approach. Yeah. And that's exactly why we need to have a plan to utilize every dollar down to the nearest cent mm -hmm. to maximize the effectiveness and the efficiency of those dollars invested, you know, and, and, and ultimately how do you think that looks for growing the elite level in terms of producing those Christian Pulisics and mm -hmm. um, at these major MLS clubs and stuff like that? Yeah, the elite level is kind of a different conversation um, because the elite level is very self-funded through the player market and stuff like that. And so basically what we need to do to have better soccer development and less pay-to-play in the U.S. Yeah, is, getting rid of the pay-to-play ultimately. Yeah, ultimately like we want to keep the focus there. We need more fully funded academies. MLS is doing a great job of that. They've only got two academies left that they've got to keep pressuring into not having pay-to-play model. The next step is USL in the second division, USL Championship, and then USL League One. Can we create enough revenue streams for these teams to fully fund their academies? Yeah. Can those leagues become strong enough for it to be economically realistic for them to fully fund their academies? Then we start to get to a situation where we're a little bit more like England, yeah. who have 96 professional clubs across like nine divisions or something along those lines. And all of them have almost all of them have some form of full academy, whether that's from U12 up, some are doing like U16 and up. But regardless, they all have academies that are have tons of players in each of them, and it covers the whole country. So if we want a similar level of that elite kind of developmental pathway, 
we need to continue to grow the, those those leagues and have fully invested academies there. Love to see it with MLS. It's not the way it was 10 years ago, and that's something to celebrate. Yeah. The next step is USL and USL League One, and the only way that that happens is we support those leagues. Yeah. And that uh, that's that's ultimately the only way that happens. We have to support those leagues and recognize the quality that's in them, buy tickets to their games, watch them on TV so they get better TV contracts because the more revenue they get, the better players they end up getting, the more relevant they are on the world stage, and the more realistic it is for them to fully fund their academy. Because, I mean, look, we're talking dollars and cents for their owners here. Their owners aren't just going to fully fund their academies because they think it's the morally right thing to do. Yeah, it's not a charity. It's a business. They're going to fully fund their academy because it makes sense for them realistically in a business sense. So that's the next step on the elite level. And, you know, I think probably training compensation and solidarity payments are probably a part of that for them. Um, The jury's kind of out on whether that violates antitrust law. How good is it morally in terms of restricting this player movement and stuff? And we can have a whole conversation about that kind of stuff. And we'll allow you to guys to draw your own conclusions, do your own research, figure out what you think of, of those systems. Yeah. Compare it with the European system because that they have it enacted. Does it seem like it's going to be holding back all these big transfers that that you're seeing? Uh, Is it going to be affecting the smaller transfers as well? Exactly. And if you think that training compensation solidarity payments are a good thing, then we need to institute a good domestic payment system so that when these small clubs lose players to big MLS clubs, they're getting compensated for it. And it makes sense for the owner to invest in an academy because he's getting an in return on that investment. He's not just losing players for free. Should be a positive so, thing, yeah, not a controversial exactly. thing. So for the elite level, that is our next steps. That's kind of a tangent from what we've been talking about for about the last 30 minutes here, yeah. which is more that grassroots level. So Matt, what do you think we need to do? What are your takeaways from the research we've done and the discussion we've had for getting rid of pay to play at the grassroots level in the United States of America. Yeah, well, first I want to kind of touch on a point that you were making yeah, there in, in terms of support your teams. For for me that that's really changed the way that I I view sports and and so I've had to be like, all right, if I want to see US soccer prevail in terms of a domestic league scale and a national team scale, I got to like I I, got to stop watching as much you know foreign soccer I'll watch Premier League because obviously I I love that and and that's something I'm not willing to give up yeah but uh, my sport intake is limited to you know in terms of the worldwide sports is is just Formula One and MLS and Premier League and so that's pretty much what it's limited to and then you got to look at it domestically as well because these MLS teams can't get good um, domestic TV deals if everyone's watching the NBA game or the college football game rather than the MLS final, you know? Yep. Um, and so that means that I got to stop watching as much of the, you know, the Hornets or whatever. Yep. Major League Soccer is renegotiating their TV contract in 2022. And then you've got the 2026 World Cup coming up. The statistics around TV viewership are going to be vital for them getting a TV contract that makes them more money so they don't have that big gap with the Premier League that we talked about. Exactly. The only way they get a bigger TV contract is if more of us watch them on TV. And if we don't, that's why pay to play is in the system. There isn't enough revenue in order for these teams to make the adequate amount of investment in a grassroots level. So you have to pay for it. The money's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. You, we're not just going to magically produce the money out of nowhere. Exactly. And it's so got, it's got to be produced from somewhere. The money has to come from somewhere. You can't just wish pay to play away. Yeah. And, and so since I want it to go away, yeah, 
you got to take action. Mm-hmm. And so doing action in terms of supporting your, you know, major pro teams and everything like that. But also volunteer, you know, go yeah. to your local rec league or whatever, or look at your local grassroots teams. Those that aren't that top threshold of MLS and hopefully in the future that USL championship and USL mm-hmm. one volunteer and go and help officiate a game or go and help, uh, you know, coach a team, get that licensing and everything like that so that you can drive up the demand and that the price can eventually come down since they don't have to have as little of offerings. So if you have a greater amount of people saying, Hey, I need to have more offerings in terms of when I can get uh, my license, they can offer more classes. And so it's not going to be as expensive, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And, and so the, Geographic reality ultimately discern, uh, determines the grassroots necessity. Since the country is so big, those top teams aren't going to have that web to develop all the talent. Charlotte FC is not going to be able to develop the talent in all of North and South Carolina. Their sporting director um, already stated that they're yeah. going to be partnering with the grassroots level in terms of utilizing the systems mm-hmm. of the teams in North and South Carolina. And so we got to make sure we support those things yeah. and, and so that more people can play in those grassroots levels. And pretty much we have to avoid over-dependence on that funding from one of those three branches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, an important thing to note here as we really discuss here the grassroots level, what we mentioned about supporting Major League Soccer, supporting USL Championship, supporting uh, the national team, that drives revenue for them, and that increases the revenue for them. And when they have more revenue, they have more cash to spend, which means they have more cash to spend on developing grassroots soccer. Yes. And so it's kind of a two-step process. Support those teams so that they can drive more revenue, and then two, pressure those leagues and those entities to be spending the rev- the extra revenue they're generating as they grow over time on grassroots soccer. Continue to keep this conversation alive and continue to pressure those entities that, hey, I'm helping you generate this revenue. We're all helping grow the game here. Reinvest it in grassroots soccer. Do what Germany did. Do what England is focusing on right now. That's what we're wanting to see. And, and that's, I think, an important note to make. But on your point there, we don't want to become over-reliant on just MLS funding it. Yeah. Because you're seeing some of those issues in England, if you want to Yeah, I mean, that. that's how the... Premier League surfaced and and that's how this European Super League is, is surfacing in terms of these top teams. These top four or five teams are the ones that... So the Premier League, they make so much money, mm-hmm. like we've already discussed. Like $80 billion, or not $80 billion, $80 million a season in yeah. just TV revenue alone. Because of that, that money has to trickle all the way down to the grassroots level. And yeah. so they take a huge chunk. And the majority of that is taken from the top five or six teams because yeah. they create the biggest amount of that revenue. Right. You have teams making upwards of 200 something million dollars. Yeah. And they feel like they're driving, they're worth more than that 200 million they're getting every yes. year. They're driving more revenue than what they're getting from the split share. So they feel like they should split off, create a huge super league and just keep all the revenue for themselves because that's exactly. what they feel like they deserve. Yeah, they feel like they've been carrying too much of the of the load in mm-hmm. terms of too much of the financial burden and not been getting the reward of it. It's just only to their detriment because yeah. they're already investing in their own academies and in their own grassroots um, football. Yeah. And, um, 
And so, yeah, so for, for us, we don't want to become too dependent. We don't want to become too dependent on the government for it. We don't want to become too dependent on the USF for it. We don't want to become too dependent on MLS. It's got to be an integrated, a united approach from all three of them. And, and like, that's why Germany has been so successful. That's why their, um, their national team president is you know, raving about the unified approach. It's like the yeah. uh, Mercedes from Formula One. It's like this team aspect where you don't just blame a person. You take, you know, that initiative as a team, as United States of America, you know, like yep. uh, got to be patriotic about <laughs> it. You know, everyone's got to play their part. You yeah. Know? Um, and and uh, I'll, I'll quote some Kennedy for you. And it's not ask what your country can do for you in terms of producing a top level American soccer talent. What can you do for your country to produce that top level American talent? I'm pretty sure that's that, how he said it. I think that's an it. exact quote from Kennedy, actually. Yeah. I, he I, was I'm, a visionary in terms of American soccer development. I got I to gotta tell you. Icon. What a legend. Absolute uh, icon. We're, <laughs> we're still inspired by him here at What the FC. <laughs> but, but ultimately, it's stop tweeting all these things in terms of being like, man, U.S. soccer sucks. We didn't make it into the last two Olympics and didn't make it into the World Cup. Do something about it, yeah. you know, like, yeah, raise the awareness of it, but look and try and do something and volunteer yeah. and, you know, drive that revenue up. And, and so I think ultimately that's what's going to drive, I think, that success of getting rid of that pay to play. And so I think ultimately we got to assess how that's going to be successful. So, mm -hmm. Will, what criteria do you think in 10 years down the line? Let's just assume that tomorrow the USF, the MLS, and um, excuse me, the U.S. government decided that they were going to, you know, create a united initiative to get rid of pay-to-play, invest yeah. in grassroots soccer. Yeah. Um, in ten years' time, when we get to reflect, what determines success for you? First, before I tackle that question, really quickly, I want to make one last point about this. We're talking a lot about long-term vision. How yeah. do we how do we grow revenue over a long time? How do we um, create a change over a longer time? Some quick short-term things that I do think we can put pressure on right now. USSF does have a large cash surplus. Um, yeah. It is 145 million of undesignated money that they've got sitting not in fixed assets. The FA in England has like the Wembley Stadium, which is a yeah. ton of fixed assets. It's all liquid. It's all in investments and stuff. Trust me, I spent this week going through USSF tax returns with my dad to make sure that I was understanding oh them right. Gosh. Who's a CFO? <laughs> so I've delved through. Like they have the cash. I really think that they should be using some of this cash surplus in a responsible way to focus on making coaching credentials more accessible yeah. and more affordable and referee credentials more oh accessible gosh, and please. more affordable. That, right? Yeah, that because is both, huge. both of those things are important. You, I mean, as we grow, 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 if you don't have referees, you don't have a game. Yeah. So, but I think the coaches are especially important. And I think we saw that England and Germany, that was a major focus on a lot of their investment. And so I think we really need to focus on getting more qualified coaches. I'm not saying that we need to get coaches all the way to USSF pro licenses. I'm yeah. just saying like, can we get the coaches at our local rec leagues? Can we have a way to fund them to get the entry level USSF coaching badge just so they have some idea of a better way to develop a player a better way to relate to kids a better way to run practices 
and those, I went through that. I, I did the entry-level USSF courses, and I paid for it on my own dime. And if these coaches are doing it, they're either paying for it on their own dime or it's getting passed off to the parents by the rec league to help get their coaches certified. So I think the USSF can be using some of this cash surplus to do that, and that's what I would put pressure on them to do, and that's what I would hope they would do in the short term because I think that helps with the quality of the grassroots soccer and ultimately helps us in general and doesn't pass off um, stuff to pay to play. But that's a, a whole another thing. In terms of what what qualifies as a success in terms of getting rid of pay to play, when we're talking about getting rid of pay to play, we're talking about increasing accessibility in U.S. youth soccer. We want everyone to be able to have the same opportunity to be found, identified, and developed as a player for whatever elite ceiling they may have. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about attaining these perfect demographic percentages because that, like we said at the top of the episode isn't always just about the payment barrier. Yeah. There are so many other cultural factors and other things that may prevent someone from playing. And I also don't want to assume that like every Latino Hispanic kid wants to play soccer. Yeah. I don't want to culturally stereotype people like that and be like, well, Hispanic Latino kids make up this percentage of the population and we've got this percentage of Hispanic Latino kids. Once we eliminate the payment barrier which i really hope we can do over the next decade two decades and if we're still experiencing problems attracting the hispanic latino community or the african-american and black community or whatever minority community it may be we need to look at that and ask ourselves questions about okay what other barriers do we have in place we can be looking at those barriers at the same time we're looking at the payment barriers. yeah definitely do we not have enough Spanish language coaches? Do we not have fields close enough to these communities? Do we not have clubs that feel accessible to these communities? Are administrative problems a problem? All this kind of stuff. These are barriers that are also barriers outside of the pay to play, but eliminating the pay to play is what's going to make things ultimately uh, accessible at the base level. And that's what we're looking for by eliminating pay to play. And I think our big takeaway is that it's not going to fix itself. No. You can't just write an article, write a tweet saying pay-to-play needs to go. It's the worst thing. We're the only country in the world that does it. The rest of the world, you can play for free, yada, 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 and not offer a solution for how it can be done and offer a realistic solution for how it can be done. Based on our research, we don't feel like training compensation and solidarity payments are a panacea as they are often presented we feel as you articulated very well that you have to support your local soccer in a way that drives revenue. It's kind of an ugly truth, but ultimately the money for youth soccer has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Field rental facilities aren't free. Coaches salaries aren't free. Equipment uniforms are not free. Someone has to pay for it, and the money has to come from somewhere. And the best way to generate the money for that 
right now in U.S. soccer is to pawn that off on the parents and the families. Exactly. Because there isn't enough revenue from other places. Soccer isn't popular enough to generate huge sponsorships. There isn't enough community fundraising done towards it. There isn't enough revenue from Major League Soccer and the USSF, and there isn't enough attention from the U.S. government to fund these grassroots soccer initiatives so that the cost of playing the sport goes down. That's ultimately what it comes back to. Yeah. And so the only way that we as individuals can impact that is to support local soccer. And that's 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 the way to get rid of pay to play for us. Yeah. That's our takeaway. And you can feel free to have whatever takeaway you might have. Maybe you believe it's done differently. Maybe you think we're a little cynical about it. Maybe you believe something else could be the solution. And that's totally cool. And we'd love to hear your thoughts about it because ultimately our episodes are about creating conversation, yeah, creating nuanced perspectives, and ultimately giving our take after a long discussion. We're at almost an hour and a half at this point. Jesus. But that is ultimately what we're trying to do here is to create a springboard for healthy conversations that help American soccer and soccer in the Carolinas and soccer in Charlotte and soccer across this country move forward yeah and ultimately it's not given that you know i don't think success is going to be dependent on the u.s men's national team or the u.s women's national team winning another world cup like hopefully those things will sort themselves out if we do the proper job at the lower levels um of abstraction you know Mm -hmm. and so if we do make things available you know some people might have different preferences of what sport they like to play. Some people might have different preferences of what things they like to do in their leisure time. But I don't want anyone's excuse to be, oh yeah, it just wasn't accessible to me. There just wasn't a good enough, there wasn't a team around me or there wasn't anything affordable around me. Like for me growing up, I had a basketball uh, hoop in my driveway and I would practice all the time there. And for me, I didn't have to sacrifice anything. I didn't have to pay anything. And like it was accessible to me in order to hone in my own skills and stuff like that. But for soccer, I didn't have anything like that. I didn't have a field that I could kick around in. I didn't have a yard to do that in in middle and high school. I didn't have any friends that that ultimately I could kick the ball around with. And so and I didn't have a club uh, until my junior year that I could travel to other than if I wanted to go to Savannah, Georgia, which was over like an hour and a half away and all their tournaments were in Atlanta. And so that just wasn't attainable for me. And so I want people to have that accessibility regardless of payment, regardless of location and regardless of like what their community looks like. And, Mm -hmm. and, and, and so ultimately I think that that's what in our eyes will garner success. And we just want to create a culture that is passionate about it and not passionate to a point where we get disillusioned by, you know, elite uh, elitism and like success and stuff like that on the field to determine whether or not we're doing good jobs as a community, as individuals in terms of benefiting from the ground up rather than the top down. Yeah. Wow. Clearly Matt and I had a lot to say about this. Yeah. Uh, We, we got, we got going on that one. But ultimately, support local soccer and put pressure on Major League Soccer, USSF, USSF, and hopefully in someday in our future, our different levels of government 
to form a unified approach to use that revenue to create that accessibility that is so important to Matt and I and is so important to a lot of you in the soccer community. So on that note, I am Will Martin. And I am Matt McCutcheon. And this is What the FC.